this is the first book launch event for my book. And it felt very fitting to do it at CBRL because I wrote the book pretty much here. Of course, it was based on my doctoral thesis, but when not doing this day work in the Institute, I was writing, I was writing this book and it began its life as a, as a PhD um, at the LSE. And it was shaped by social anthropology, debates within social anthropology, but also by the events that were occurring around the time I was writing my doctoral proposal, which was 2010, 11, 12. And initially my plan was to travel to Syria and um, live with and follow the movements of Syrian men who flee from military service. And back at that time, when I was convinced that eventually I would still be able to do that. And I traveled to Lebanon and I sat waiting, waiting, thinking there would be an opportunity to continue that project. And then it fell apart. So I had to instead find a new project, which in many ways meant that I started doing really traditional anthropology. So I had a field site, but no idea what I was doing. It was how anthropology used to be. You just go to a place and then you figure out something that's interesting and happening there. And what I fell upon was the lives of Syrian male construction workers in Beirut who form the bulk of the, of the manual labor population in Lebanon. They build you know, the luxury apartment blocks, they build, they work in, um, in supermarkets. They're basically the sort of uh, the, core, the, the core working population of Lebanon. Lebanon could not survive economically without, without millions over time of Syrian workers. So to introduce the, to introduce the topic, a film, while I was writing my book came out called Taste of Cement. And I think because I'm not very poetic, the film kind of poetically sets the scene for what it meant to be a Syrian worker in Beirut from the years 2012 to 2016-17, which is the span of, of, of the book. So yeah, what I, what I like that is the scenes where they're sitting and they're looking at the, the phone and, and, the, and there's the television playing. This is what it was like in my in my fieldwork, sitting in, in, in houses in Sabra, in Shatila, in Hamra, in like rundown, quite rundown sort of squat-like conditions. And always in the background would be these constant scenes of the war in Syria, almost being like live stream, because there were lots of local television channels broadcasting those images straight into the homes of Syrian workers who were very much aware of the kind of situation they were in where they were rebuilding a country still recovering from its civil war while their country was simultaneously being destroyed and that interspersing of the scenes is it is it oh what to look here in the interspersing of the of the scenes between the the the, the, the destruction and the people underneath the rubble and then moving the cement around it just it really you know perfectly captures the feel of the field work. And of course, I try and do that in the book through ethnography, but I think that does it uh, particularly well. So the, the idea of the book, it began, it began because I had no field site. I had no idea what I was gonna do, but I did remember reading a book by John Chalcraft called Invisible Cage, which is a historical, historical and sociological, historical eth uh, ethnography of Syrian workers from Lebanon's period of independence up until around 2006. And then I thought, well, okay, from what I know from reading this book, it's very likely that these men probably have certain thoughts or feelings about the uprising. They tend to, tend to come from the areas in which were supportive of the uprising, predominantly rural, having moved then into sort of shanty towns around urban centers. But I remember even, even when I was back in London, I really didn't think, I kept insisting 
to people in various classes that there wouldn't be an uprising in Syria. I kind of bought into the, to even Bashar al-Assad's own sort of rhetoric that there's a Syrian exceptionalism. I'd say Syria, Syria has not liberalized to the same speed as the Egyptians. You know, they didn't, their, their economy didn't, it hadn't completely cut everything off in the same way as elsewhere. I was very doubtful, of course, and then also the real fear of the, Syri of the Syrian state, I thought it would block it. So I was very surprised when that happened. And then I was aware of the necessity of, 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 of being very careful about the topic. And I would, when I started going into the field and looking for construction sites, I'd go and do a household survey. So I'd ask, you know, what do your brothers do? How much land do you have? What do you grow? Um, often because that's what people think research looks like. So it's a good way in. And, and then they would say to me, oh, you're not going to ask me about the revolution. So then I realized, okay, the revolution has become a central framing topic of these equal sites. So that's basically the background that led to the book. So in the talk, I'm going to briefly describe the history of Syrian to migration, looking at what John Chalcraft details, but just to set it in context, what the, what the book is actually about. I'm going to detail how that changed post-2011, so the ways in which that flow of labour began to shift, um, both leading up to 2011 and after 2011. And then, given that the book is called Rebel Populism, I probably should talk about what I mean by that. So I'll describe, to do that, I'll talk about how workers thought about the uprising, the kind of political philosophies that they would express in relation to the uprising at this time. And then I'll also look at the images and art objects that Syrian workers shared about the uprising. And then to round it out, I'll talk about how, the, how that uprising collapsed into sort of sectarian conspiracy and, and sort of regressive thinking and how that might be related to the nature of what the uprising was. And then to conclude, I'm going to place the work in the sort of broader context of Arab Spring ethnography and anthropology and why I think it contributes to the, to the discipline. So as you can see, this, the, these are the chapters. I'm not going to talk about the, the ones that aren't in red at length. So the first chapter is about the history of, uh, of Baathism and the ways in which the lives of, of workers were incorporated into that project. Then the chapter I will talk about is the development of revolutionary thought among Syrian workers. And then I'll talk about how it was uh, pictorially represented through um, art objects on, on phones. And then I'll talk about how it collapsed. So I won't talk about martyrdom or masculinity, but I can, if anyone wants to ask about that, I'm happy to talk about it in, in questions. I try to make it such a sort of a, a rise and fall of the uprising. So to begin with, I'm gonna read a, a short extract, a short extract from the book. So, Abdullah stretches his arms upwards, cracks his back and looks out across the Mediterranean. I've still not found a job, he says, taking a slow drag from his cigarette. It's early winter, 2015, and we're eating chicken fajita at a fast food restaurant on Beirut's seafront. Abdullah is a 26-year-old Syrian migrant laborer. He's about five foot 10 with a slightly protruding belly. He wears hooded athletic pullovers, jogging bottoms, and aviator sunglasses. His hair is neat and trim, with short sides splendid down into a well-maintained stubble beard. Recently, he's begun to sprout grace and his friends mock him for it. Abdullah puts it down to stress. And there's no doubt that his life was wrought by anxiety and tension. Over one year, over one year ago, the Salafi jihadist militant group, Islamic State, surged across the Iraqi border and conquered his ancestral village. 
Despite his initial tribal-led resistance movement, their homeland soon fell. But his mother and sister still live there, and he worries about them every day. The war has already claimed many of his comrades and kin. Yet not long so long ago, Abdullah was adamant that the people's final victory was just around the corner. He would tell me stories of abusive bosses in Lebanon and his dream of a future defined instead by freedom, dignity, and democracy. And despite everything, despite the splinters, setbacks, and even the emergence of Islamic State, he remained committed to that goal, the fall of the regime. Dining with us that evening was Dalla, his newly wedded wife. She's short with bold makeup, highlighting her sharp facial features. She wears a bright pink hijab and a matching pink pullover. Dalla's family are shopkeepers from Idlib. Unlike her husband, the bulk of her immediate kin have long since fled to Lebanon. The young couple fell in love a little over one year ago. In spring 2014, they were both working together at a white goods wholesalers in Beirut southern suburbs. Abdullah thinks that their marriage, due to regional and class differences, would have only been possible thanks to wartime dislocation. Dalla's parents would never have approved of a man like him. But now she wants more than he can offer, and he's feeling the pressure. His family are forever compelling the young couple to build a life free from precarity and poverty. Dalla also now cares little for the revolution. <coughs> While she's not strictly against the uprising, she's adamant that her husband is an, is an idealist, stubbornly unwilling to accept today's reality. All she wants is for the fighting to stop and meaningful life to resume. You see, says Dalla, interrupting her husband's tale of unemployment, Lebanon can't give him a future. No future, low wages, high costs. Well, what should he do then? Take a smuggler's boat, I ask? Yes, she says. My cousin's in Germany. I want him to go. There's nothing for him here. But it's illegal. How many people have died crossing, I reply. But how many people have died in Syria, Abdullah now answers. There's lots of pressure on me. What can I do? Stay here for nothing? Go to the village and maybe Islamic State will kill me. Get on a boat, maybe I'll drown. I just don't want to leave and be so far from Syria. I want to go back to my village. But there's no future, says Dalla a second time. Suddenly, a TV in the corner of the room draws our eyes. We see bloody people running panicked from smoking buildings. Frantically, I check my phone. A twin bomb blast carried out by Islamic State had moments earlier struck a popular market area in South Beirut. It killed 43 people instantly and wounded a further 200. It exploded just two streets away from the young couple's new apartment. And Dalla's insistence that her husband leave for Europe now seemed a little less rash. So I hope that also helps contextualize a lot of the predicaments and difficulties that Syrian workers were facing in Lebanon, particularly the point that they were not free from the same social forces that were shaping the crisis, the pressure to leave, the desire to stay, the hope that the revolution could still be rescued, even at that late stage. And what we, what's important to know about, about Syrian workers in Lebanon is that you know, they've lived there for decades. They've produced, they've built, they've built all of Lebanon's luxury apartment buildings. They toil for backbreaking hours in grocery stores. They scrub dishes in upmarket restaurants. And they're predominantly from these rural and semi-rural peripheries. Hidala not so from, from urban Idlib, but 
Abdullah is from a, a rural farming family. And that is generally the case. That's generally the demography. You have people from rural backgrounds or semi-rural backgrounds engaging in forms of manual labor for a long period. And the most important feature of that, of, of labor to Lebanon, is that it was temporary. There was no second generation of Syrian workers born in Lebanon. They would go there for a period of time between the ages of 18 to 35 in general, but sometimes you'd see older men. And they would go there and accept harsh conditions, low wages, living in shacks, low construction sites on, 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 with basically no rights that they ought to have, no rights to form a union, no rights to social protection services, no rights for health and safety, highly, highly exploited forms of work. But they would accept it because the costs of social reproduction were being carried out in Syria. So that story that I began with just there, Dalla was with him, his wife he met in Lebanon. So already in that, you can see a shift in this traditional pattern. Normally, a Syrian man would raise money for a dowry and wed someone in Syria, and the wife would generally stay there. You would not meet someone in Lebanon and then start trying to produce a family life in Lebanon. And that's why Abdullah says he feels pressure, because he can't produce that life, because it's not designed. This flow of labor is not designed for that life. It's not intended to, to, to allow a sort of a, a, a family wage. And it was basically, you know, so obviously in Lebanon, you get the same talk you get everywhere where people will say Lebanese workers are taking the jobs of Lebanese. But, that, but as it is everywhere, what the actual case is, is these jobs were never intended for Lebanese people. There's a detente or an agreement or an unspoken political economy that means Lebanese employers benefit from a supply of disposable low rights workers who have to accept low wages for poor conditions and they can't say no, it's, a, it's a, an arrangement. And that arrangement was beginning already to fray. So here's, can I move this, this thing here? So that arrangement, this is, I've tried to sort of do it in a smart art form to make it a bit clearer. So you see, these are the conditions of a worker in Lebanon, low wages, sharing apartments, single men, and then they're moving backwards and forwards to Syria where they have reduced costs, supplementary income sources through agriculture or small, small enterprise. They will build their homes, their healthcare is tied up, their married life, raising children. For a long time, that was more or less sustainable. So Syria never had shanty towns around major urban centers. The, the economic policies of the, of the regime up until 2010-11 more or less sustained a certain quality of, of, of life, not great, but by no means desperation. Um, and then if, what would happen is if a worker suddenly has an excess cost, suddenly there's a new kid born or there's some reason they need to make money, they have Lebanon as a source of place to go and get some work and then go back. And this was how, this was how it set up and this is how it basically functioned for a very long time. And then the revolution happens. So the flow backwards and forwards begins not immediately to stop, but it dries up. And what we see is that this was happening even before 2011. So these are two uh, you know, macroeconomic charts that I think illustrate something of Syria's predicament. So you see that imported goods rapidly, rapidly accelerating from 2008 onwards. Syria more or less was going up, but sustained more or less was producing its own commodities for internal markets, exporting those commodities to certain places. And these sort of peripheral forms of industry would often employ rural men when there's rural downturns. 
And then you also have Syrian um, consumption of oil is starting to, uh, the consumption and production is starting to go out of whack. And suddenly you have essentially what, what, what other scholars have called authoritarian upgrading, which it feels like a bit of a retro concept to talk about now when I, when I say it out loud, authoritarian upgrading. But what people think was happening back then is that uh, the state was basically the authoritarian system wasn't uh, moving in the, in the direction of sort of accountability and, and good governance. What it said it was doing was eroding social safety nets, removing the possibility to articulate grievances through trade unions, trade union reform, and the, the, the power of unions in, 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 in Syria weakened. Markets were liberalized, the security apparatus remained unreformed or enhanced, and democracy remained unreformed. So this is what people call authoritarian upgrading. So what effect did this have on the flow of labor? Well, what began to happen, so you have, when the uprising began, some workers would return to fight, and they tended to be men who had military experience, or their younger brothers were already, uh, they had younger brothers working in construction, so there wasn't going to be a sudden collapse of incomes. And because you have got the double-headed arrow, because for a while, you would get guys going to fight, coming back, going to fight, coming back. Coming back, you would, I would meet men who'd been involved in battles, had come to work for a bit, and then they would go out again. And that, until the border hardened, that was actually relatively common. And then sometimes, then you would start to get from Syria over time movement to refugee states in Lebanon. But if you look at Lebanon, the wages didn't go, the living conditions didn't change, and the pressure obviously mounted. And then that collapsed. So those who went to fight, couldn't get back to Lebanon anymore because the border regime strengthened. So suddenly now, what you end up with is just Syrians going to Lebanon to a situation that was never designed, not that it was designed or never emerged organically to support families. It's not designed to support working class Syrian families. So the amount of pressure men were under was extreme. And then what does that lead to? That leads to Dalla saying, get on the boat to Germany because it's, they cannot remain in Lebanon. So a lot, at the time, there's quite a lot of people talking about Lebanon's actually, you know, this is a long time ago now, we're talking 10 years ago, people were saying Lebanon's a relatively good place for Syrians to go because there's been a historic population of Syrians. That is a surface level reading that doesn't look at the political economy of who those Syrians were and that they cannot, could not support wives and children coming where they have to start paying for healthcare, education, everyday commodities. It becomes impossible. And then that disappears. And then you just have a refugee flow. So what I started to think about is that, that section's sort of the tragedy of the whole thing. But the book tries to, to a certain degree, also rescue the revolutionary hope that people experienced that time. And in the beginning, in the first story, when I talked about what, what Abdullah said he wanted, remember he said he wanted freedom, democracy, dignity. And these, these are kind of um, sort of liberal sound, this is a liberal sounding language. This is a, we'd not necessarily expect a worker to say these sorts of words. So I had to try and think of a theory that could allow me to understand what those words were doing because a Syrian worker, if he says they want, he says he wants freedom of expression, I mean, he's not going to write, to be realistic, he's not going to write a column in a newspaper. Well, what, why would that word be used? Um, so then I looked up, scholarship around populism, because populism scholarship tends to focus on sort of emptiness of language. And then when I went through populist literature on populism, what I discovered is often, you know, populism is kind of um, 
it's, it's extreme, it's framed extremely negatively. It's seen as a manipulation. It's seen to sort of exploit grievances, not real politics. It tends to be associated with the right wing. So we tend to think of it as reactionary, fused to authoritarianism, somehow anti-democratic. And then we think of Johnson, Bolsonaro, Orban, Trump, right? These are, you know, the key right-wing authoritarian thinkers that we think of, not thinkers. And then what happens is that even a left-wing populism kind of gets tarred by association to those right-wing figures. So even left-wing populism gets these suspicions around it. But what even is populism? What do we mean by that? Because all of these attempts are to try to fill that term with a kind of meaning to set a set of essential features that populism must have. And then you'll get the notion that it's simplistic and then you, you'll have people saying that it's sort of driven by self-interest, exploiting people's needs and, and giving them what they want, clientelism, this kind of thing. But this is good. <laughs> you know, like under neoliberalism, people get what they want, they just happen to be elites, right? And if you have a populism from below and it's about transferring wealth, then that's Transference of wealth happens in any political system. It just depends whether it goes up or down. So I thought we need to look again at populism. And then I finally found a theorist that I liked. So yeah, I've, messed, I've said this, it has an inherent liberal bias, this polluted use of the term. And I felt that we need a word that describes what a, a mass movement without a coherent ideology because that's what the Arab Spring was. It was a mass movement without a single coherent ideology. It was not a socialist uprising. It was not an Islamist uprising. It was an uprising, but what? We need a word for that. And I like the word populism, so I tried to, to rescue it. So I came across Ernesto McLeod, who is a, who is a Latin American theorist, who writes about populism not as a thing with a substance, but as a style of making claims. And its essence is quite simple, one we all know. Populism is us versus them. That's the essence of a populist statement, us versus the elite. We are the 99%. A shabby leader's got on Islam. This is the basis of populism, that single sentiment. And then he, from that point, he expands into an, a whole theory of it. And at the time, I remember reading all of these articles in, by Joseph Massan, Asaf Bayat's book, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, which also made the point that the Arab Spring lacked an ideology, and it was co-opted easily by liberals. That's basically what they attack. Massad talks about that, you know, that there's a sort of a CIA-type plot that's using negative, negative forms of uh, negative freedom in place of substantive freedom. And evidence for that is things like human rights or dignity or freedom of expression. These demands are seen to be part of some sort of a Washington plot. But then why a construction worker saying it to me? That, that was what I was trying to understand. And I came to think about those words as essentially what Leclerc calls empty signifies, meaning they have no constituent content. So if a worker says that they want dem democratic reforms or, or, or um, freedom of expression, or whatever, it's not like that they are advocating the sort of goals that are talked about in Washington. That's not, they don't have this plan in their head. But what in Syria, these words have meaning because you, if they were to advocate for the kinds of criticisms that came up from, from some uh, older academics, that they started to advocate for, you know, socialism, whatever, doesn't make sense to say that in Syria because you've lived under a socialist regime, self-presented as a socialist regime for decades. So if a Syrian worker said, Badman Islam, it has no meaning. 
because they've lived under a Syrian uh, socialist system. So these words are essentially antagonistic and empty. And then I drilled down into them and started asking workers, and I detailed it in the book, like, what, do you, what is freedom? And then more you go into it, more you actually can reveal that when these words were used, what lay behind them was a substantive desire for a more, for a more dignified life. And I often, yeah, I'll talk about that later before I get into it. So I'll now move to how that kind of sort of basic antagonistic politics that was fixed in grievances and needed a language to articulate itself moved into the sorts of world of expression and art that Syrian workers engage with. So this picture went viral in 2014. It's by an artist called Tamam Azam. It's Klimt's The Kiss, and it's from a series where he superimposed Western masterpieces onto bombed buildings. And it went absolutely viral. And I was very curious what Syrian workers would think about it. So I asked them, and they asked me, is he with the regime or is he with the uprising? It's not immediately clear, right? Because this is this image here is kind of look at the violence, isn't it terrible? Here's a Western masterpiece that I'm going to insert over this Syrian destruction. And it was it was not this this was a sort of a endemic problem. And the reason I was curious about it is because images occupied a really important place for Syrian workers. They were constantly sending me artwork, sort of clip art type artwork that I'll show you, that was pro-revolution types of art. So images occupied an important place, but not images like this. But this, this was celebrated as political art, so I was curious. So then I turned to Alfred Gell, who's an anthropologist of art, and, and these, these shields, I'm now doing, doing, going to do some very classic anthropology now. I'm now going to go to some tribal shields. <laughs> these, these shields are the Asmat shields. And, and when, 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 when Gell started to think about them, he identified a problem in how we think about artwork, which was we tend to, we would look at this in an ethnographic museum, and we would say, what does it mean? You know, what, do the sim what is the meaning of the symbols? Is there a message encoded in this? So our, our approach to art is to think it has a meaning that we can decode. But for the men who carried these shields, meaning of these artworks is not supposed to have a secret message, it's supposed to terrify the person you're facing off against. It's designed to do something, it has an action, right? So, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not gonna go through the boring bits. So this is some more examples of, of, of Syrian artwork from that time, which was heavily critiqued. A lot of this artwork was critiqued also by, by, by Syrian activists at the time. We can see the artwork here, it's largely presenting scenes of devastation and destruction. Scenes of you know, bloody heads and a woman giving birth to weapons and heads as a rosary. It's fear and, and, and death and destruction. But the, but Syrians who are directly involved or interlinked with the uprising know that death and destruction intimately. That death and destruction was the thing that had to be overcome in order to produce the revolutionary break, the rebellious forms, forms of populism. That this, this, and it was critiqued by other Syrian activists at the time, this kind of reproduces the fear. It reproduces the mechanism of the fear. It's kind of doing the regime's work for it. Because the regime wanted people to be scared. So these images are about because what they actually these images are. So yeah, I guess it's interesting to talk about the 
plinth picture, because it's a particularly noxious example of it, is that the, the artist has taken, these are not Syrian works of art, and they put these works of art on scenes of destruction. And what, what's the idea here? I, I, so here's another classic anthropology move. I can't start to think it's like vault sorcery, where you stick pins in something, you know, when you want to do magic. So that the, the artwork is like magic. And what's it saying? It's saying that this destruction is terrible. But for the men who come from these rural backgrounds, whose lives are defined by low wages, whose brothers are fighting in the uprising, who've developed a, a, a critique of the regime, that violence has a meaning. That violence is part of the struggle of which their kin are taking part in to rid themselves of what they see as the source of, a, of, a, of a oppression in their lives. So this is what workers would share. And you can see this is not quite a shield, but it's moving into the shield territory. These are this, this is artwork. You're not you're not decoding what does this mean, right? No pictures at this point. What, what does what's being recorded? What does what does this mean? You don't you don't think that. So what when workers would put these as their WhatsApp images, or they'd send them to friends, what they were doing at that point was they were basically demonstrating that they are no longer afraid. That the, the taboo, the barriers of fear, the lines you must not cross have been crossed and they are crossing them. And they're showing everyone by setting it as a profile picture that they would cross them. And these don't celebrate violence. There's elements of violence. There's a tear of blood here, but it's also the flag of the Free Syrian Army. So there's an element of transcending the violence. There's an element of revolution. And workers can see, would see within those images yeah, I'm not going to go through these boring equations, but they would see in these images the space for themselves. It would be a reflection what these equations basically saw, and I detail them in the book. It's part of Gell's theory of art. They, they show when you put the image, who is seen to be responsible for that image's existence. So if you see a, a, a classic piece of artwork like the Mona Lisa, you see the artist. Whereas if you see these, you see the revolution. You wouldn't say, who's the artist of this one? You, that doesn't enter into the question. The artist of that, in many senses, is the revolution. So there's the hope. And now we I mean, have to step forward a little bit because I'm trying to do the full sweep of the, the book to the collapse. So over time, of course, the, the war, relatives died. There was huge amounts of loss men returned and, and, and many, some of them were killed by Islamic State. Huge amounts of violence was occurring. A series of bombs were going off in Beirut, often targeting um, heavily uh, areas thought to be populated largely by Shia. And conspiracies at that time, especially during the sort of 2015-16 period when there was lots of explosions, were really circulating. And one of the major ones that workers came up with, I analyze in this chapter, is they would say, Bashar al-Assad created Islamic State, right? This is a classic conspiracy. And when men would tell me this, there's a tendency in anthropology to say, you know, to do an ontological turn and be like, what does it mean when they say this? But when a man tells you that, they, they actually want you to challenge it and, and, and say, no, that's not right. Or have you thought about this? So in that chapter, I, I detail the bits where I think the theories are right <laughs> and the bits where I think they're wrong. So the Syrian regime, as we understand it, did not do such an intense job of targeting Islamic State positions and certainly benefited from the emergence of Islamic State. 
These are not irrational minds. They're looking at various pieces of evidence, reasons for argument, and coming to the conclusion that the Islamic State was created by the Syrian regime. The other conspiracy we had that was correct, as they said, Hezbollah was intervening in the Syrian uprising way earlier than, um, than it was officially announced. And they had evidence for that. They had videos showing Hezbollah fighters. And then it turned out they were correct. So when men start to circulate conspiracies, you have to take it seriously because there's two tendencies where we see conspiracy of the truth value. So that's when scholars say, try and assess it with whether or not it's true. They say it's a symptom of a delusion. It's a symptom of being confused. It's kind of a sort of elitist dismissal. Or we have the other term, which is to see them as sort of expressive folk theories. But what men do when, when, when they were telling me conspiracies, they, are, they think that they are revealing reality. They're, they're telling me what's actually happening and we should take it seriously, not pretend it's some sort of folk theory, because sometimes they're right. And that's the other important part of this chapter is where I, before beginning even the discussion, I detail that whenever you talk about conspiracy in the Middle East, it can sometimes have this Orientalist flair where it's like, you know, Arabs are obsessed with conspiracies. Well, yes, the modern Middle East started with a conspiracy. The Sykes-Picot Agreement is a conspiracy. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction is a conspiracy. If you ask students in a class to name conspiracies to you, they will often say, you know, man never walked on the moon. They will never say Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, the number one conspiracy that shaped so much of the world. So you have to take it seriously and they sometimes get them right. But the problem was when those conspiracies moved slowly over time, and I trace it through the chapter, from analyzing a thing, a small event, to analyzing a grand strategy. So Islamic State was created by the regime. Why? Because there's a region-wide Shia plot to take over all of the Middle East and kick out everyone, and et cetera, et cetera. And then once you make that step and you include the identity characteristic, it moves from a kind of political analysis to essentialism, and then it can move to supporting violence. So once you start to see it in those essential terms, once they're all starting to be connected up, that's when it moves, into, it moves into danger. And that's what I try to detail in that, in that chapter is to show that potentially within these sort of, because it lacked an overarching revolutionary ideology, because the revolution was largely built on men's grievances and an us-them dichotomy, perhaps potentially all uprisings of this sort have a seed that can grow into essentialized conspiratorial uh, thinking. So finally, to conclude, I'm going to talk a little bit now, just the conclusion about where I see the book within um, anthropology of the, of the Middle East. And um, it's important to remember, you know, when the, when, when the Arab Spring started, the Middle East, Middle East anthropology was basically not interested in politics. It had almost exited the field. It was mostly studying things like women's mosque movements, exotic things, the unusual, the strange, cults. It was, it was in this sort of realm. It was not studying everyday lives of working class men. It was not doing that kind, that kind of studies. It was not studying political movements. It was not studying activists. Now we do quite a lot. But back then, that was mostly the terrain of political scientists. And we'd surrendered the field to political science and geography. And, and, and I don't think that, and I hope that the book makes the case that some of those tools of political science I don't think is sufficient for understanding the mass part of mass movements, you know, social, uh, you know, um, uh, resource mobilization theory, all this kind of stuff. We also have to know about the life worlds of people at the center of these movements. And 
I also try and argue within the book that Edward Said and the cultural tendency towards relativism meant that we became obsessed with everyday resistance and things like affect and looking for politics where men would never recognize it as politics. Everyday politics, everyday resistance isn't really resistance, it's surviving. So if I said to the men, you know, when you make a joke about a Lebanese boss and you make fun of his accent, is that political? They'd think I was insane if I said that. So we lost sight of the ability to talk about that. And it's incredibly, uh, we've seen, and yes, we're seeing similar discourses now emerging in, in Iran, where a lot of people are not quite sure how to respond to women burning the hijab. They're, you know, careful. They don't want to be Islamophobic, but at the same time, they, they want to try and understand the movement. So you see a similar kind of tension emerging as to how we, how we think about it. Um, so I hope, yeah, I hope the book helps in advocating for taking seriously the mass part of mass politics.